Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. Homelessness is a problem nearly every major city across the country is dealing with. Arguably, even the small ones are confronting it as well. And here in Albuquerque, city leaders have tried countless ideas to try to get a handle on the issue. Just last week on this podcast, we talked about Mayor Tim Keller closing Coronado Park, a longtime city park right near I-40 in downtown Albuquerque, where at its peak, more than 100 homeless people were camping out. As part of that closure, Mayor Keller described what the city calls outreach efforts. Basically, that's another way of describing social workers and other folks talking to people living in the park and offering all kinds of help and links to that help. So anything from offering a voucher for a place to stay off the street to food assistance, healthcare help, the list goes on. On August 17th, the day Coronado was closed, there were roughly 40 people still living in the park, people who were described as refusing services. So who are those people who are responding and offering help? But Albuquerque has to carve its own path. And our own path means understanding both where our community is at and also where our city government is at and where our police department is at. Back in June of 2020, the city announced an entirely new public safety department. The idea was to have a civilian team of trained social workers or behavioral health responders, not police officers, responding to problems like the ones many people deal with in Coronado Park, which range from homelessness, mental health issues, and drug addiction. They're an unarmed civilian behavioral health response team now considered a third option for the city's incoming emergency calls. That department is called ACS, or Albuquerque Community Safety, and with us today is the department's director, Mariela Ruiz Angel. Thanks for being here. Thank you. First, explain to us what is ACS and who does it serve? So ACS is a third branch to public safety. So you just said it, right? Um, when you call 911 or 311 for service, in the past, you would always get just a police officer, a paramedic, a firefighter. Now you'll actually get a behavioral health responder. And there's different levels of behavioral health responders, right? We have a, a mobile crisis team that is paired with a uh, police officer. And those are like your highest acuity, right? More really intense crises. And then you have behavioral health responders who go out to a variety of different calls, domestic violence, welfare checks, um, sexual abuse cases. It really is kind of the gamut of different of issues. And then you have kind of more of a community response that's really about checking on a lot of what we consider to be in the past, we call them um, well wellness checks, but they in the past were called down and out. So we go to a lot of those calls. And then we have a small outreach team that is meant to go out to just what you talked about, right? Working with our, our encampments, um, our, our unsheltered neighbors and encampments that are of large size. So really when we think about ACS, it was always meant to be an alternative to policing, right? Ways so that we can divert calls, the many, many, many calls that APD gets in order to be able to alleviate some of their time and put it on ours. We've placed more and more issues on the plates of officers who who are not trained despite their best efforts and despite some training. They're not totally trained to be a social worker or to be an addiction counselor or to deal with things around child abuse when they're just answering a call. And so that's actually what we've done really well over the last year. We've taken about 14,000 calls for service and more than half of those have been calls that would normally have to be um, 
addressed by police. So the model itself is really working. However, when we see these types of, and I might call them large um, situations, right? Or maybe, you know, emergencies. This is a national emergency, what we're seeing across the country, which is unsheltered individuals. And more importantly, those individuals a lot of times are dealing with mental health. They're dealing with addiction. They're dealing with poverty. Some of these folks are, could potentially be family members who, right, were originally paying rental for $650 and are paying $1,400 because landlords are having to increase their prices. And so, we're seeing the disparity between what used to be kind of a middle to lower class and now just seeing like lower to homeless and the numbers have gone up. The silver lining is that we have this alternative response and that we are able to help build on the current infrastructure that the city has already built around family and community services who actually has a deputy around homelessness solutions and who, right, tirelessly, we've also had all these providers who have been doing this work. So the infrastructure has been there and so we can build on it but even then, it's still not enough sometimes. Having that third tier response is not something that's very common in a lot of cities. There aren't a lot of people doing this out there. Is, is that how you feel? Well, I think that some of our biggest cities, right? San Francisco, Denver's doing something like this. Philadelphia, there's other cities around the nation who are absolutely doing some sort of alternative in some way to response. Um, but we were the first city department in the nation to be able to do something at this scale. In our first year, we had 50 to 60 individuals with ACS and we'll be doubling that number over the next year. This is huge. This is a huge, uh, you know, just accomplishment, I think, for our city, but even for our nation, because we are now becoming the model that a lot of cities are looking to do, right? It's sustainable. It's not a nonprofit who then we're burdening with a ton of extra, like do this whole other thing. There's a lot of politics and unfortunately a lot of complicated issues that come with creating a third response because you have already historically a fire and a police department who have always been around and have taken all these calls. So really trying to create something new can be difficult sometimes. But again, I think that this is something that's catching on across the nation. And I think with, and I won't get too deep, but I think with 988, right, this new crisis um, number that's also being implemented across the nation, it's gonna, we're gonna need more alternative types of response to 911 than just our fire and police. Albuquerque's mayor has finally said enough is enough. The city is closing Coronado Park. The site of a massive homeless camp. But they're going to one of the more topical issues that's happened recently. We mentioned Coronado Park off the top of this episode. But I wanted to ask you when, when the city announced it would be closing Coronado Park, what was ACS's role out there? ACS is always going to go out to wherever the emergencies are at, whether it's at Coronado Park, whether it's on the street, we're going to make sure that we are going to those. So Coronado Park was typically a location that we spent at least two days a week at for the last year. And even maybe before that, um, the city had been going out to Coronado Park. And so we had been working with the downtown area for, for the last year. So when we decided to close the park, we knew that there were people that were going to get displaced. We also knew that there was going to be folks who needed to be separated from like a lot of the general population because a lot of them were mistreating others, right? They were exploiting folks um, and causing a lot of harm and danger and, um, and anxiety in that park. So with all that said, we really jumped into action with our partners across the city, as well as other departments to really try to 
do the least amount of harm as we possibly could by going out. Um, we went out daily at one point early on. We were then going out in large numbers to really try to address. We went out there multiple times to really try to create a, a very um, trauma-informed response in which we were able to sit with people, talk to them about their options, give them storage options, um, transport them to wherever they wanted to go. And that included getting on Greyhounds to go home to be with their families if that's where they were ready to go. But it was all about meeting people where they were at, right? We can't we can't force folks to sobriety. We can't just fix people with with mental health issues and the drop of a dime. It takes time. And and there is choice. We have to remember that people have choices and that's, you know, the beauty of living in America. Um, so the reality is what we had to figure out is who was willing to take those resources. How do we work with those folks? And then we will continue to go out, right? The, the outreach doesn't stop just because Coronado got closed, right? We have continued to go downtown. We have seen some migrations happening across the city and we'll continue to go to those places to meet people where they're at and not just say, let's just keep everybody downtown or let's put everybody at the West Side shelter. The reality is, again, people are going to go where they feel safe and that might be in areas that we have to meet them at. I did a story with ACS back in May, and I was able to ride along with two of your civilian behavioral health responders. Farther east, Walter Adams and Jenny Carrion are dispatched to their first call. There's a lot of people right now that sometimes feel like nobody's listening. Quick plug, you can check out that story on krqe.com slash investigations. We'll also put up a link in our show notes in this episode. But I learned a lot. And these are teams of two people. They get dispatched to different parts of the city, just like police do. There's a laptop in the vehicle where the passenger can keep an eye on the types of calls that are coming into 911 and see maybe where they could help out or even respond in lieu of police, correct? Yep, that's exactly it. And I think that's where... You know, as much as we will continue to do the outreach and we work with unsheltered individuals, not every unsheltered person is in crisis. And I know that that's probably hard to think because you think you're not living under a roof. There's a lot going on. And that's absolutely true. But when we talk about crisis and when you ask for police to go out, we're talking about people who are dealing with suicide ideation. We're talking about domestic violence. We're talking about it potentially could be a life or death. And I think that that's where we have to kind of prioritize some of our calls because some of our pieces that we're trying to do is preventative too. With folks potentially living in a car, that the next level after a car is the street. So a lot of our calls get prioritized to go to people living in their cars or living out of motels so that we can get them onto the housing. Data from the first few months shows most of the calls ACS responds to are for quote unsheltered individuals. But the reality of all this is that our housing situation is, is bleak, right? It's like a two-year wait to get any sort of sustainable long-term housing with rental prices going up. I mean, that makes it really difficult for individuals. And again, this is not like, let me just pick up and go to another city or another state. This is across the nation that we're seeing this. And then the other piece of this is that we're also not necessarily putting a lot of money into areas that need to really be bolstered, right? Sobering beds are really difficult to find here. And then depending on the type of sobering bed, if it's not medical, then you can't necessarily take somebody who's too inebriated or not inebriated enough. Um, the, the barriers become really difficult. What are some of the kinds of challenges that these ACS responders have faced? There are folks who are feeling helpless and frustrated that they have to go to five different you know, 
places to maybe get help. And so we are trying to tighten that up so that we can try to figure out the system of care a little bit better for those individuals. But sometimes that's difficult. And we have families who we can't always get into motels because we don't have the motel vouchers or we don't have the space for them or they're not low barriers, right? There's not a, there's not a harm reduction model in place to be able to get them to a place that would allow them to do, right, to drink. And again, part of this is not to enable, part of this is saying like, it's a process to, right, we can't just cut people off cold turkey, you have to have medical right stability to be able to do that. Those are issues we run into all the time. Where are we going to put somebody? Every person's situation is unique. We can't just put a box, right? Everyone's like, take them to the shelter. Not everybody is a good fit for the shelter. Not everybody is a good fit for certain providers, right? We have a ton of amazing faith-based groups, but some of them, you have to be a certain type of religion in order to part, you know, participate in their resources. Not everyone's going to fit into those resources. So again, how do we streamline this? How do we, um, I think a big piece that we're asking in a lot of other folks, and I think the state's really doing a good job at figuring out how to do this, is how are we sharing data and information in a way that's legal, right, with HIPAA compliance, but also so that we're not having to re-traumatize somebody by saying, oh, I see, you know, tell me your story so I can figure out where to place you when we could really look up a data system that says, I've seen that you're homeless for the last three years and you've had these many touches with this many, right, let's figure out how to get you to the next level. Are you out here by choice? Yeah. Other no. times, people aren't safe. interested in getting off the streets or connecting with resources. I feel like all hope is lost here. No. If we came across him tomorrow, we'd do the same thing. Ruiz Angel knows drugs and mental illness play a big role, but says their strategy is repetition and rapport, and they're in it for the long haul. You know, I will say early on, there was a lot of mis. mis interpretation, misconception of what ACS was going to be. ACS was created during the um, defund the police movement. So the reality is like the rhetoric around defunding police was the launch for a lot of these departments or these programs. Um, but we were never about defunding the police. The police have, have not taken a hit and neither have a, has our fire department in any way or form in order to fund ACS. And so I can't promise that that won't be the case at some point, but I think the reality is that we needed to crush the fact that like we absolutely do need our police officers. ACS needs our officers, right? Um, and we have to be able to kind of figure out how to work together. And I think we've done that in a really um, holistic way and maybe not so much as purposeful as much as just like there's been this amazing empathy between our right different safety departments around just the issues that we're seeing, right? Firefighters are dealing with the same thing. Fentanyl, you know, numbers are going up and um, overdoses are going up. And so police and fire are, are now have this third person who's in the same boat with them that can really... Um, empathize with what they're going through. That is probably the one non-challenge that, right? It's one of the biggest um, wins that we've seen is that in the city of Albuquerque, our public safety departments are really coming together to think about big solutions. Paramedics and police and firefighters have been doing this for years and they have, they are running out of resources and us now being here and having these connections to different resources, we're seeing the same thing. We're, we're, overburdening a lot of our partners to say, fix this situation, right? And so I think that there's a definitely a place that as a city, we're working with partners to figure out where are they at? How do we bolster their work? How do we advocate for them? 
Um, and that's not just at a, a state level, but at a potentially at a federal level. We know that in Albuquerque, we have to respect the needed core police work that is that we need in our town. Uh, but we also have to include the fact that we've got to prioritize non-law enforcement alternatives when it comes to how we uh, react in our 911 system into challenges in our city. So in our city, we must do both. We are not accepting a choice between one or the other. Just to add a little more context to yeah, the launch of this program, you talked about the history of it. Mayor Keller announced it in July of 2020, months after George Floyd was killed, and there was an outcry across the nation over the role of police in day-to-day society. But our residents have shared their hopes and fears when it comes uh, to making our city safer. And what has emerged, I think, is a very uh, structurally meaningful um, answer to what our city is dealing with. And it took a little more than a year for the city to really start the department in earnest with things for ACS officially launching in September of 2021. But one of those early safety concerns that I remember being addressed specifically by the Albuquerque Police Union president was he pointed out that ACS responders are not armed like police officers are. And most of the time, people that they're responding to who are in a mental health crisis do have weapons. How does ACS handle that? First of all, ACS, just like all of our safety departments, our public safety departments, safety is absolutely the number one thing that we think about. So not to say that mental health right, isn't important, but the reality is that when we go out, we assess for safety first. And so we've been trained by police and we've had trainers come in from other cities and states to help us you know, really be ready to go out into the field in case anything happens. No, absolutely. Um, we have to consider the fact that people have weapons. I mean, I, I don't think we approach anybody who couldn't use something or had some sort of something on them, um, especially when you're working with unsheltered community. A lot of times that's a protective piece for them. Right. And as a woman, there's protective pieces. Right. Pepper spray and like little things that we can do to protect ourselves. So we we could be hit with any of those situations. So we absolutely recognize the the safety concerns. But I will say that I think one of the things, and again, this goes to just having a different approach and a different response, is that even not being in uniform takes a situation that might be highly escalated down a couple notches. And then hearing from someone say, we're just here to check on you, we're not police, takes it down even two more notches. So now a situation that's highly, what was a level 10 is not a level five. And we can actually have potentially a conversation. The other piece of this that I think, you know, police didn't understand early on, and, and it wasn't really, we didn't know how this would work, is that we're not enforcement. So at the end of the day, if someone says, please don't come closer, I am not, like, don't want to have a conversation with you. I'm armed. I don't want to talk to you. Um, we're going to say, okay, then we'll check on you here in, in the next couple of days and we'll do a follow-up, but we're going to head out now, right? We do not need to force ourselves on somebody because these are resources that are optional, right? Unless we see that somebody is going to hurt themselves or hurt somebody else, um, because we are mandated to report, um, we're not going to force somebody to be evaluated um, or, or even need to call police unless that's the case, you know, unless there's actually something that, that could be criminal. What kind of relationships do you think your team has been able to forge at this point? You know, are people on the street getting used to seeing ACS out there? And along those lines as well, maybe a part two of that question is, you know, are there city leaders and, and maybe other people who were skeptical of this that are 
giving you feedback and maybe forging more of a relationship. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, because this was created in such a, um, a heightened political climate around defund the police and we were in the middle of our own election. I think there's lots of people who are highly surprised that ACS wasn't just a a little program, but like became a full department and that we've actually been able to show really amazing results. Now those long-term results are going to take time. And I think there's lots of factors for that, but ultimately we've had people say like, we knew you were going to like start something, but we didn't actually think this was going to last. Like mm. we thought it might've just been like a, a quick little, Hey, we're going to do this, but I'm like, people are in shock. Um, so I think that that's been like some of the internal um, surprise, but I also think with that, they're like, okay, so let's actually think about <laughs> how we're going to set you guys up, right? With HR issues, right? A lot of our stuff, we were like pushing hard. We're like, let's just create this and we'll see how to, to sustain it, right? And now we're in the conversations about sustainability with our our DT, our, our technology departments, um, our HR departments, our finance departments. Like, what do we need to do to make sure that the we can sure up this department in a way that like, actually has an opportunity to succeed, right? We've shown that the concept works, not just locally, but like nationally, right? These are, this concept of sending non-police officers out to calls is working. And again, we're not talking about homicides. We're not even talking about active domestic violence. We're talking about, you know, low acuity calls in which don't require police. Absolutely, I think we're seeing some interesting buy-in um, at this point in time. I also will say it's really nice, and we do have partners in communities and those that are out in the field, um, whether it be our neighborhood associations or um, our unsheltered neighbors, but we are starting to see a lot more people who will wave to us and give us thumbs up and, and recognize who we are. We have our cars wrapped beautifully in what was really a representation of what the community really stated that they wanted to see. Something that was not gonna be really like in your face, but also right would represent something that we're here with the city or that we're here with ACS and that it wouldn't just be an unmarked car. So with all that said, absolutely, I think lots of folks are starting to see this. And I, I feel, Um, that we're starting to be normalized, which I love, right? Because this actually gives us an opportunity to really grow and figure out what our future looks like. But we're only a year old. We will be a year old in September. And it's hard to say that sometimes because I'm like, oh my God, there's still so much work that we need to do before I could even think about um, handing this over or moving on to anything else. And so I I definitely think um, we're just at the beginning stages. Like we're still in our infancy stage. So we just, you know, we're still getting our name out there there and we're still trying to make sense of all that's happening and also figuring out like really what our place is, right? We're going to do the 911 response, but like what else can we do? How can, how else can we be a catalyst? What other calls? Like now that we're growing and we're, we're taking more folks, what other training do we need to have from police or from community partners um, or fire so that we can really even broaden out more of our calls? I will say from riding along with the two field responders, they knew a lot of the names of the people they were encountering over and over. And they would even say on their off hours, they would like text each other if one of them was on duty and say, Hey, have you checked on so-and-so like they weren't in their usual spot or things like that. So I can tell they are, you know, building a, a relatable recognition with a lot of those folks on the street, but I wanted to just give people a better understanding as well of how ACS responds to certain calls. So from what I understand, you know, to give an example, say I'm a homeowner or a business owner, someone sleeping on my porch or in my alley, uh, a suicide call, a team with ACS can be dispatched 
And then what, what do they do? Any given day, we will get a call and I'm, I'll just give you a realistic example. We get a lot of calls from individuals who maybe have parents or family that live here and they're like, hey, I have an elderly mother who I haven't heard from in the last couple of days. And normally we talk pretty often, but I haven't heard anything. I asked the neighbor to go check on them, but they're like saying nobody's answering the door. Just want to make sure that they're okay. We have gone out to calls where we have found people who've just fallen and literally cannot get up. I know that that like commercial, but that's what's happened. Um, unfortunately, we've also encountered situations where people have completed suicide. And so our role really is to one, assess the crisis, figure out what's happening, right? Get them to the right services. So in cases where we have found people who have hurt themselves, you know, we call, immediately we'll call paramedics. If we're in a situation where we need to have police, we call police. Um, and then ultimately, most of our calls, it's really about just getting people to the right response. So an unsheltered individual at a business, right? Hey, can you please come help this individual? Let's say we get out there, a really perfect situation is the person's like, all right, I'm ready for services and take me to wherever you think. And so it's our job to then connect them with the right types of, right, what it, what has availability? Is it a sobering bed? Is it a, right, just they need to get their driver's license and let's figure that out. Um, and that's, that's a really great response. Other times it's like, I'm cool, I'll move. It's, uh, you know, no need to, and we're like, that's okay, just take your time. But in the process, let's talk a little bit while you're getting your stuff together and let's have that conversation. So it's never just like, thanks a lot, toodles. It's always like, all right, that's cool. So you're, you don't want resources, but let's talk about, you know, where are you, where are you coming from? What is going on that, you know, you've, you're living on the street. What's, what's your next plan? Um, that relationship building and that rapport building with folks, even though it may not lead to them going to a, an actual provider or a shelter goes to your point, right? The next time we bump and jump, because chances are we will, um, hopefully he'll know that like one, he can talk to us a little bit more about what's going on in his life. And two, maybe he'll be willing to take that, that, that resource that we're offering. So again, this goes to the, the place of um, hitting rock bottom. I think that's a really difficult conversation to have sometimes, especially um, right now where so many of us have loved ones who are dealing with addiction or issues where they're like, I just don't want help. Um, sometimes you have to wait until that happens. But again, whether it's the fifth time or the 20th time, we're gonna continue going out. So how we, how each of my responders goes out and does that and builds rapport is going to impact the next team that goes out when they go meet with us. So there was a level of compassion and um, respect and, and hopefully just the ability to say like, we're here for you. So if you need, if you're ready for that, you just call this number and we will come out and get you and we will take you wherever you need to go. So I think it's really about the relationship building, which again, is hard for a lot of folks sometimes to be like, well, that's not, you know, I need the result now. And I'm like, I get it, but it takes, it, these, are, these are complicated issues. And if it wasn't a complicated issue, I am sure we have very smart individuals who can snap their fingers and make that, that work immediately, but it doesn't work like that. Is it at all disheartening when you're faced with those folks who, as you mentioned, maybe they are not ready to accept help at this point? Do you feel like maybe, or do the folks you know, in the field feel like their hands are tied maybe, or that this sort of is a fruitless or frustrating effort? I mean, I guess the question for our listeners is like, how hard is it when you have somebody who you love that won't listen to your advice, right? Like, let's get you into sobering services. Let's get you the help. 
it's, ex- it's exhausting. It's frustrating. And so, um, it's definitely tough, not just on your body to go out to these calls, right. But it's emotionally and mentally exhausting. We've even had situations where we have had women who have been in just these brutal relationships and we're like so close to getting them in the car and we're like, come on, you can do this. Like, let's just go. Like, we'll get you. We can replace everything that's in that tent. Like we got this, let's move out. Let's go. And they get into that car and they said, I can't do this. I can't leave him. Um, and it just is so heartbreaking because we're going to see her again. And every time we see her, she's more and more beat up or more and more hurt. And I think that there's a level of this that we as responders, you talked about challenges. This is a challenge, right? There is a real such thing as compassion fatigue. And I think that it's not just happening with us, but I think we see it with our other types of first responders who are like, why can't they just take the help, right? We're saying, here's everything for you that you would just need to do. And they still are like, I just don't, I'm not ready. So absolutely, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it is disheartening and it is frustrating and it can definitely feel hopeless. Like you're just like, nobody wants to do this. But again, I think part of this, and as a social worker myself, it's really about continuing, right? You got to self-care. I can't help anybody unless I'm taken care of. So a big part of what we're really trying to institute into ACS and not just here, but into other cultures of the city is around taking care of yourself, right? We don't work extra hours right now. We don't pay overtime. We make sure people work eight, you know, their, their eight hour shift. Um, and ultimately, right, cut it off because at this point, anything more than eight to 10 hours can be difficult on somebody, right? It can emotionally take a toll and that becomes then less, less compassion, less ability to think about resources. And, and so with all that said, I think that's, that is definitely a challenge and it's something that I think we're going to see more of, unfortunately, across, across the nation. How is ACS doing right now with staffing? Do you have enough social workers, counselors, field responders, or is there a gap that you're finding in your own department that you'd like to fill? Well, I think we are actually seeing an influx of people who want to do the boots on the street. So I will say we're not hurting there. We've got lots of interested individuals who want to come work for ACS. Um, And then in some cases we have brought people on um, really not from a first response. I mean, most of our responders love their job. I mean, who wouldn't? If you've ever worked as a social worker, case manager, or a clinician, it can be exhausting, right? Even in that, because you have to qualify somebody, you have to see if they have the right health care, then you have to put a two-week appointment out, and it's long-term care, which can be really um, taxing on, on both individuals. However, I think with ACS, it's much more, right, get out to the scene, make your assessment, figure out how to get them into the into the facilities and not have to worry about all the medical pieces and all the insurances that come into place. I will say, I think the hardest part about this is our, our admin team, right? We're starting a new department. It's a startup. And that's, it's a definitely a like startup world meets city government, yeah. <laughs> which like, I don't know if they've ever meant to exist together, but they are. And so I definitely say that like for some folks who are like, I'm going to get into that city government position and it's going to be like an eight to five and it's going to be right. Like all the perks are realizing that some of those admin positions and those higher level supervisory positions are tough. Like oh, it's yeah. not an eight to five and <laughs> it is constantly shifting gears from having a crisis on the street and having to go address that to then having to go to a meeting and have, you know, a town hall and then going to a community engagement event 
with a bunch of angry neighborhood associations, that is tough work. So I will say I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see, you know, right now we are sustaining um, pretty well and we're hiring also. So just a plug for that. Um, visit ACS at uh, cabq.gov slash ACS for jobs. But um, yeah, I think that we're in a really good place, but there has definitely been some it's fast. It's fast and, and hard work and you hit brick walls and then you, you know, have to kind of start over on some areas. So we're, we're as much as I'm, it feels like we've been around for a long time and I'd love for that to be the case. We're still in our, again, I go back to this infancy stage. So we have folks who are like, this was really cool in theory, but like not what I was looking for. And I'm like, that's okay. Like we have to be patient and find the right folks who are willing to, to live in that that place where you're going to have high highs and low lows sometimes. And how do you track progress? So we track all of our, our work through our CAD system and through our, our internal databases. And so those are like very, our, you know, outcomes, what kind of calls are we going to, what happens after the call? Um, if we do any follow-up, that's all tracked. Um, so, you know, a year in, we're definitely in a place where evaluation needs to happen. And so that's kind of our next our next phase into this department is how are we tracking long-term? It's been really difficult to do that. I think in any sort of city department, because the pandemic hit in such a weird way that like what was a baseline before is no longer going to be that baseline. So we don't really know how to look at historical numbers on 911 calls because we started in the middle of a pandemic. Numbers are high in general. And then they kind of dipped, right? Because there was like kind of this hiding that was happening and then they went back up. And so we're hoping that after a couple of years, we'll really be able to track the long-term impact that we're having. Um, but I will tell you, like one of the things that comes up often is that officers don't have to go to some of these calls that are not appropriate for them, right? And that they don't really want to go to. So we are seeing potentially, and this is what we're hoping to really prove, is that um, we have seen a decrease from our police officers in use of force. It's fantastic news. Um, whether it's ACS or really just good training and the DOJ and all that that's been happening, at, at good things that have been happening at the police department, we're hoping that we can track that, right? Are police, are we having less arguments with officers and putting people, right, not having to have that engagement? Are we going to see less police encounterings that go wrong. So I, I definitely am looking forward to really being able to dig into the numbers, but we're just still, again, only so far into our infancy that right now we're really able to just um, collect that kind of short term. How many calls are we taking? What type of calls are we going to? Does the system work, right? I think that's another piece of this that we're really having to figure out is like, we want to go to these types of calls, but like our dispatch infrastructure, which has been really great for us now, we have to kind of figure out how does this look long-term. Um, we don't want to get into the dispatch. I, I definitely don't want to get into the dispatch um, industry or call taking industry, but it makes us think about like, how are we going to better other systems that we're then also working within? So with all that said, yeah, lots of, lots of good outcomes so far and metrics that we can measure, but also things that we have to, we're going to have to really dig deep and work with our providers, right? If we're making good connections, that's like a thing we right now we can't track very well. So if mm. we're taking people to, um, you know, Turquoise Lodge or taking somebody to First Nations or, or to the Karis campus right now, we're working on MOUs that say, hey, if we send somebody to you, are you willing to then with an ROI share what their, what happened after them so that we can really understand are the connections that we're making with providers and warm handoffs actually going to 
the long-term impact of getting somebody into assistance and help. As far as addressing homelessness, uh, I got to ask, what are your thoughts on safe outdoor spaces? Well, Carnado was not a safe outdoor space. So I think that there's been, again, a misconception on what a safe outdoor space is. Um, we have seen some that have been fantastic and that are ran and sometimes are high barrier and sometimes they're lower barrier. Um, and we have seen bad ones. I have seen some horrible safe outdoor spaces. I'm like, oh, I can't see this happening. Um, but the reality is I think that whether or not I agree with safe outdoor spaces, we've got an issue here. So again, I, I, not we don't have enough um, vouchers and we don't have enough housing and we're seeing, right, prices of rent go up and we're seeing <laughs> salaries, right? I mean, all of the, the stars are not aligning for us in a way that it's gonna help us have good outcomes. Um, so the reality is we absolutely need to have some solutions um, and solutions that don't require us to build an entire new building or that require an entire infrastructure change. We have to figure out how to make some of this work in the short term. Otherwise, again, we see cities who are all about enforcement. We can't, we're kind of rest our way out of this. Like we're not going to arrest every single person. So I definitely, again, I, I like to say I'm Switzerland. I, I, I'm always kind of, you know, watching. I'm an observer. I like to assess. I like to see. Um, and I love to be a catalyst in a lot of the change that we're doing, but I definitely think like right now there is not a one size fits all solution. I wish that there was our lives. I'd be working myself out of a job, but, um, we're going to have to be creative and we're going to have to think about how we're going to, how, how to do this together. What do you want the public to better understand maybe, or, or to take away from either what ACS does or how the city is addressing these issues that exist in our community? One, I'm very proud of the mayor and the city council take a huge step in creating something super progressive and very bold for our city um, and state. But I definitely think that the community has been wanting this for a long time. And I think that we've actually been able to get to where we can we can still shape it in a way that's gonna to address the issues that we need to. So right now, ACS is addressing 911 and 311 and 242 cop calls that are low acuity mental behavioral health calls. And sometimes that is homelessness. Sometimes that is um, addiction. Um, it, it really is a lot of different areas. But I think that we have to consider um, all the different factors. So right now, yes, unsheltered individuals need as much help as they can. So we're going to jump into action there, just like police are, right? They're fo refocusing where they need to focus their attention on. So I think that as we build this department up, we are still looking for input. We still want to hear from, from residents and business owners um, and, and those who have lived experience around what we can be doing better and how to really make this department um, not just another, like what we don't want to do is just have just a big team of outreach and just saying like, you know, how can I help? Oh, you don't want to go anywhere. Okay. See you next time. But that we're actually doing meaningful long-term work and that we're bolstering and partnering with in the, with, in the right ways. So, you know, I think that there's lots of ways for me to say this, but ultimately I think we're in the right direction. We're taking calls for service. That's the most important thing for us, right? This was about unloading some of the burden from police and fire onto a third branch. That's what we're doing and we're doing it well, but we're going to have to figure out how many, how many more folks do we need to have before we actually see that uh, like true 
ability to have some level setting in that we're not burning out police and that firefighters aren't necessarily having to go out to mental health calls. So I think that we're still in this interesting space where um, we can determine that. So it's hard for me to say like, this is what we are and this is how we're going to be and this is how we're going to run and this is our mission vision. Um, you can go to our website and take a look at our org plan. It's a, a 18 to 24 um, month strategic plan that's in there about what we want to address and how we want to do it. But even I look at it now and I'm like, God, there's so many things I want to change in this already. So, um, <laughs> it's very much an assessment phase. It's totally it an assessment. Like. I mean, again, I think before we even get to a place where we can be like, yes, we're here. We're still like two, three years away. I mean, that's, and the great part is, um, we have this amazing support from our administration, from many city councilors, um, and our communities. So right now I, I will say like, I appreciate just all of the love and, um, and just like fair, right. We've even had people like tell us very straightforward. Like, I wish you just did this better. And I'm like, thank you. Like, I love that because I can't, we can't shape it where we need to, unless we get really honest, um, and, and straightforward feedback. So again, I, I welcome that. You can visit our website. My information is on there. You Facebook us, Instagram us. Um, one of the things we do really well is our transparency, all of our data is online. So you can kind of check out where we're at. I will say again, like we created a department that was later than a lot of our neighboring cities. Um, and we're ahead of the game. So I love that, but I think it's an, enough for us to kind of say, okay, now let's really like polish it up, right? We've got, we have it, we've, we've created it, let's polish it up and then we'll take on more when we're ready. But yeah, we're, we're really excited. And again, I appreciate you guys having us on here as just an ability to kind of explain what we're at and what we're doing. Thanks again to Mariela Ruiz Angel for taking the time to talk with us about what HCS does. We really appreciate her insight. Um, also, it, yeah, I thought it was interesting that she said it's like a startup meets city government. It seems like they're very much in their infancy phase of trying to track some measurable data to know how well the department is doing. Yeah, and she mentioned all of that data being online. We can certainly link to that in the show notes here, as well as the article that is for this podcast on krqe.com slash podcasts, which of course is also where all of our other old episodes go. So if you ever want to check out anything related to even other related discussions, i.e. homelessness, the episode we did last week, it's there for you on krqe.com slash podcasts or in the feed wherever you're listening to this. If you want to get in touch with us related to any stories, ideas, you can always email me at chris.mckee at krqe.com. You can also catch me at chrismckeetv on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can reach me at gabrielle.burkhart at krqe.com via email and gburknm on social media. Thank you all for listening. Mm-hmm.